Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Almighty God, help us to rightly distinguish between the voice of the law and the voice of the gospel, to see the value in both the law and the gospel, and not to expect from the law what can only be gained by the gospel. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. I have a goal tonight. The goal is to convince you of the the beauty and rightness of obedience to God's (laughs) commandments. Uh, of doing the right thing, and doing the right thing for the right reasons. Um, By the way, uh, I think this is hard for Americans, the whole notion of obedience, because, you know, our nation was birthed out of revolt, right? We we said no to His Highness, right, George III. We said, you know, you you have a, a way that you'd like to govern us, but we don't like your tea or your taxation, and we're going to prove it with muskets, right? And so we said no to authority in a very public and sometimes violent way for a variety of reasons that you that you and I may find legitimate. Nevertheless, uh, you know, we have a maverick spirit very often as Americans. We, uh, we find yielding to sometimes be difficult, especially if it thwarts our independence. And, and yet, the scriptures are very clear about the importance of yielding, the importance of obeying the highest good, the highest authority. And even if um, we bristle at the word obedience, I think we all want it, especially um, if we ourselves have gleaned the results of a completely disobedient life. If that's been you, and it's been you, and if that's been me, and it's been me, uh, like we're all bearing the weight and cost of going against the grain of reality, because when you push against reality, reality slaps you right back. Um, But also we see the effects of disobedience in the lives of those we care for. And maybe you right now are caring for an elderly parent and they have diabetes or to quote my grandmother, diabetes. And if they have diabetes and you do all the shopping for them, still somehow miraculously Snickers bars appear to them in their house and they eat too many of them. Now they know they shouldn't and you tell them they shouldn't and yet um, they're, they're bearing the effects of that in their own bodies because they're, they're disobeying what reality teaches. Or maybe you have a teenager who right now keeps ignoring your curfew. You say 11 p.m. I mean, you say it, and they know it. Like, there's not a problem with you know, the transaction of data. Like, everybody understands. <laughs> but yet, you know, there are a lot of red lights. You know, a lot of red lights. So they get home at 1 instead of 11 because right? of the red lights, of course. Nothing else. Nothing, like, seedier than that. Um, or maybe you have a relative, a sibling mate who's a gambler and who really is gambling away their life savings, maybe even has dipped into pension. I was just speaking to somebody the other day who was dipping into their, you know, their 401K just to have enough money to gamble with. And their life is completely um, going mad, truly, in the old sense of the word. They're becoming mad, but they won't give up the gambling. And, and everybody is suffering because of it, yeah? And so you know what disobedience feels like, and you know what the results are in your own life or the lives of others, and yet Jesus interrupts our disobedience cycles with this new commandment. And this is a, a, a profound thing that he says. There's an ocean of meaning in it. 
but he gives us this ocean of meaning on the night before he dies. I mean, he has, he has very little time with us left, but he wants to spend it uh, reminding us of the things that are most true in life. So please take up your bulletin as we read about the new commandment given in John chapter 13, verse 34. I'm just going to preach on one verse because uh, there's enough to consider there. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. Three things tonight. I'm going to talk about the shape of obedience, the extent of obedience, and the energy behind obedience. But the shape of obedience. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another. I think it's fascinating that when Jesus has limited time and limited words, and he could have chosen any word to summarize his ethic, he chooses love. Not knowledge. I want you to memorize a lot of things. Not zeal, I want you to get serious about this. Not intentionality, that's the new law of the land, right? It's the new Sinai that makes me want to just quit life. Um, uh, Or have more ideological or practical purity, you know, get yourself together. Instead, Jesus chooses love. He says that I want you to love one another. If I have a last gasp in this life of ethical wisdom, I'm going to tell you again that you really need to care for each other in this way. Love one another. Now, of course, the question remains, what is, what is love really? I was with a group of seminarians, because I was one a long time ago, and people think that when you go off to seminary, you inherit the, the, the Elysian fields where everybody gets along and it's really chummy all the time. It's like war all the time with very opinionated 20-somethings who are arguing about things they only one-third understand. And there was a big debate going on whether love was a feeling or a choice or an action, right? It was a feeling or a choice for these people. Anyway, so the feeling people were saying, obviously, it has to be a feeling because we've all experienced it when the heart is strangely warmed when we're uh, compelled to care in new and amazing ways for people. Obviously, you're being stirred uh, uh, in that way. But the other people thought that was too granola. And so they got criticized. And the, the, the decision people said, no, love is a choice. It's all about you making a determination. And it's all about follow through, even if you're miserable all the time with this person, you stay married no matter what. And anyway, it got a little uh, heated, right? Got a little heated. Um, and, uh, and then I offered uh, what was the right answer. And I said, really? <laughs> clearly, clearly, clearly. Um, uh, I said, well, actually, like biblically, it's neither one of those things. Like it's really not a feeling and not a choice, not foundationally. Like it's a commandment. Because it's in the Bible, in like numerous places, but especially here. Uh, Jesus expects this of us regardless of how we feel or what we choose. So more foundationally, it's a commandment, and we can't get out of that. Um, and, and so um, uh, why did Jesus choose this commandment to highlight? Why did he uh, speak about this, this ethic in this way, using the word love instead of anything else? Because he was in touch with the Old Testament. And you may remember that in the Old Testament, it's debated, but there are between 513 and 613 commandments, moral, ethical commandments in the Old Testament. Uh, And Jesus was asked at one point by a very sophisticated philosopher and religionist if he would summarize the entirety of the ethical impulse in the Old Testament. How How would you give a heading to all of these various moral axioms and concerns? And... It was, in fact, read in our liturgy tonight. This is what Jesus said, love. He says it twice, that you would love God with heart, mind, soul, and strength. That is, a combination of all your faculties would rise to the highest possible place to give the highest possible uh, reality homage, right? Love God, and then love your neighbor 
as yourself. That's how he summarized the entire ethical teaching of the Old Testament, love. And in his own personal teaching, Jesus ties together love and obedience. It's a description. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He connects the two. And in 1 John, in his epistle, uh, the aged John is writing about God's essence. And he famously says that God is love. He's trying to help people love each other. And he thinks that the way to coach them to do that is to remind them of God's own godness. And God's own godness can be summarized with the word love. So if God is love and has engineered the world in such a way that his creatures that reflect his lovely image are to love, it goes against our own created nature and God's own essence when we act out of accord with the demands of love. And so the whole moral law of, that's represented in both Old and New Testaments is an expression of love, regardless if love is in the commandment or not. And there are lots of them in scripture, like adultery. How is adultery connected to loving God or neighbor? Well, if you really love someone, you won't devastate and betray them by sensually bonding with somebody else because that would not be love. Thievery is not love. To covet to the degree that you steal something from somebody else um, diminishes that person's rights and diminishes your own dignity because obviously you are... Uh, you are suggesting something when you steal that you are dissatisfied with the providence that you were given, so you need to rob a little providence from somebody else, which is an unloving gesture. Also, uh, lying, deceit. If you misrepresent yourself in order to look better in the eyes of somebody, you're actually not honoring them with truth. And to not honor somebody with truth is an unloving gesture, right? I could go on and on. But the entirety of the moral law is in some ways a, a, a um, representation of or a coagulation of the massive commandment to love. And so if I steal, if I kill, if I murder, if I betray, if I cheat, if I wrong you, if I besmirch your reputation, I am injuring love. So that's the shape of obedience, love. And St. Paul concludes in 1 Corinthians 13, without love, I am nothing. If I don't have this right, it doesn't matter all of the epistles that I've written. If I don't have this thing right, nothing else matters. Spurgeon once said that obedience without love is like baking bread without flour. <laughs> Gluten-free bread aside. Um, <laughs> right. So that's the shape of obedience. And now the extent of obedience, because Jesus doesn't just say love one another. He says love one another to the degree or as I have loved you. Just very briefly, the one another bit. Contextually, Jesus is addressing his disciples at the Last Supper. This is kind of an in-house discussion. Yes, Christians are called to love, in some sense, everybody. But there's a special kind of koinonia love or community love that we're to have for one another who have been baptized into Christ, placed faith in Christ. And so the one another are the people in this room or the people whom you've never seen before but are united to Christ through those means. Uh, and this can be very tricky, of course, because there are lots of things that might divide and defeat, uh, divide us from one another and potentially defeat love. Uh, for example, there are those people, there are people in this room who prefer our current president and others who prefer our previous one. There are people in this room who love jazz. Um, <laughs> and there are others who are more cultivated. Uh, who, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Uh, who happen not to like it as much. Um, there are people who write thank you notes in this room, and there are others who never will, right? But we all have various things that we could, like, you know, get out our daggers about. But 
Uh, he's being very specific here. He wants you to love one another, the, the, the regardless of the divisions that are real that need to be talked through and all the other stuff. But there has to be a loving foundation or there's nothing to bridge those gaps. So he says, I want you to love one another, but then it gets worse. He gives the extent of this love uh, for one another. As I have loved you. That doesn't just include all of the nice things that Jesus has done before this Last Supper moment. And there were many, many of them. In fact, one author wrote, if all of them were collected into, uh, all the data were collected, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to write them down. But he's just, it seems especially pertinent that he says this now because he's about to stare down the barrel of a gun. Right? He's about to, to experience his own uh, a demolition, a public horrific demolition. That's the extent of his love. It goes all the way to uh, not just suffering, but death. Uh, Jesus is really taking the Old Testament commandment regarding love of God and loving neighbor and surcharging the love of neighbor. I don't want you to just love your neighbor. I want you to love your neighbor to death. I want you to love your compatriots to death. Um, that is the hardest moral commandment in the New Testament, I think. I think. It's even more extreme than the love expressed in the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, the Sermon on the Mount talked about sacrificial love. Turn the other cheek. Walk the second mile. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Right? Be extravagant in your love. Be sacrificial in your love. Um, but this is saying, I don't want you just to be inconvenienced. I want you, if necessary, to be permanently canceled. The extent of this obedience is a love that bleeds, to give up privilege, power, position, and perception, even protection. I find this, friends, though, an afflicting word for me because not only am I not great at extravagant love, I'm not even good at dishing out, like, dollar store love. Like, I, I don't know about you. Maybe I'm alone here. Um, but, like, I don't want to give up a free parking space if I'm closer to it. But, you know, I've got a lot going on. I mean, don't you resent it when there's a slight alteration in your plans? Even if your kid is sick, right, and it throws off your schedule, you're, I mean, you're very sad for them. But there's a part of you that says, couldn't you have washed your hands? Like, couldn't you have tried anything to remain healthy so that we wouldn't have to, you know, wait an extra four hours or six hours to get you into some medical express that, by the way, takes four hours because it's not very expressy. Um, but don't you write off rude people? If people are rude to you twice, or talk badly about you once that you write them off. Right. And we're not even good at that, at forgiving those little things. But Jesus is such an extremist, you know? He says, I want you to love to the nth degree. I want you to look at me. I want you to think about me and think about my example. I want you to have that kind of love where you, you go to the ends of the earth. I want you to go to death for this thing. I want you to love people to such a degree you lay down your life. Here's why he's an extremist, because he knows something about us that we don't know about ourselves or are very slowly learning about ourselves, and that is our innate dignity as image bearers of God. He doesn't lower the market. I do that, by the way. Maybe you do, too. You know, you lower the moral market so that you feel a little better temporarily. Um, you know, I, I meet lots of uh, young women who uh, date idiot men who um, they could do a lot better, truth be told, but they settle for this person because they, they don't like themselves at all. And so they date somebody who is not good to them, who, who swears at them and calls them names because they, can't, they think they can't do any better. They lower the market of righteousness, and it ends up hurting them in the long run. It ends up making them ha feel like they have less dignity and worth. 
when we lower the market and just say, well, whatever makes you happy. I mean, if it makes you happy, it can't be all that bad. But the point is uh, that Jesus doesn't lower the market. He doesn't say, whatever you experience as love is loving to you. He says, I want you to love in this way, in this way. Um, Now, this new way that Jesus has for us, of course, is not a checklist. He doesn't give you 18 ways of knowing if you've, you know, loved in this manner. But he's trying to give us a whole new terrain, how we ought to be, feel, and think regarding love. And he thinks that this kind of love, this sacrificial love, is far more important than our jobs, our last names, our legacies, our money, our social media presence, our decor, our parenting, our CVs, and our intelligence. I think this is a really needful word because I myself tend to be a critical thinker. Maybe you are too. Where you examine ideas and you criticize ideas and you try to whittle down to what is the true kernel beneath all the nonsense and everything. Yeah, and especially in the academic community, that's really in all the time, hard to shut off. Let Let me say something to the critical thinkers among us, me included. Being right is not enough. Being right is not good enough. Right does not equal righteousness. Right does not equal righteousness. We need the kind of love that Jesus talks about. By the way, uh, John Henry Newman once said that the goal of the Christian is to oppose the world. I like that. And what he meant by the world is a place in which backbiting, betrayal, hatred, jaggedness, judgment, hostility rule the roost. And when we stand with Christ, we by necessity stand with love and oppose the world. Uh, I will not speak at, uh, at length about this, but uh, I realize, and many of you realize, that the, the college has been in the news lately for a variety of reasons, some uh, regard as, as controversial. I'm not really worried about policies that people believe in or disbelieve in. Um, here's my concern. The energy with which people hold to particular policies. I'm not interested in opinion. I'm interested in the energy that's fueling opinion. It scares me sometimes. There's, a, there's an edge to it, feels fearful or angry. And I'm saying this as a minister that has about 40 faculty from the college in the church. Please, friends, as we consider institutional ideas that are, in fact, complex, let us not forget the ethic that Jesus has here given to us, that we are to love one another, because that's the way the world knows we're disciples. And if we are not loving each other and the world sees that we're not loving each other, the world deduces that we are not connected to that same Messiah, a la Gandhi, who said, I really love your Christ, but not your Christians, for your Christians are so unlike your Christ. But I think we ought not to be so concerned with being right that we forget to be righteously loving. Now, If I ended the sermon right here and now, some of you would be happy because it would be a briefer sermon, but how would you then summarize the theology that I have presented unto you in this sermon? Law. Now, there's nothing wrong with that in the sense that I hope that what I've said is biblically correct and true and in line with the moral fiber and teaching of the New Testament, but I have not offered you a dash of enabling word. Not a bit. That's the next point. Um, God's moral law, friends, is beautiful, right, good, and true. And it can do two things. It can show us God's gorgeous design for creation, and it can attack our sin. But it can't cure it. So let's talk about the energy behind obedience. I've talked about the shape of obedience, the extent of obedience, and now the energy behind obedience. What motivates us to obey or to do the right thing? Let me say this. I think we can be badly motivated to obey. I'm not convinced that obedience is always good for us. 
not if it's misenergized. There's a lot of reasons that people obey, right? You, a lot of people are driven to obey via anger. They're terribly upset about their own personal past, and they have a vendetta against anybody or anything that reminds them of the chaos or abuse of their past. And so they are fueled by a rage against history so they don't repeat it. Now, rage can get you far. Reactivity can get you quite a ways, but it also has corrosive elements in it, too, that end up hurting us as well as potentially, potentially propelling us. Also, competition. People are uh, driven to obey laws through competition. Many eldest children, I might be one of those, are more compliant, perhaps, than other siblings in, down the list in the family um, because we have a lifelong quest to uh, maintain order and potentially impress parents, right? Some people are, are motivated to obey out of fear because they learned, maybe as young children, that if you don't obey, you get hurt. Better to obey. I just received a letter uh, a few days ago, actually, from a Grove City College graduate, graduated like 10 years ago, and always um, felt called to um, enter education and got a master's degree, actually, um, that helped buttress their career. But it was a sacrificial ministry in some ways because this person was working in a complex inner city school in Baltimore. But this is the letter that I got from this person. Dear Ethan, well, ellipsis, uh, after 10 years of rewarding work as an elementary school teacher in this private academy in Baltimore, I've come to the saddest of realizations. This is my final year teaching. Most of the staff, along with my friends and family, assume that I'm leaving because of the neglect and abuse that have ravaged so many of our students. They think that I can no longer bear seeing it and suffering alongside it. Nothing could be further from the truth. Such difficulties inspire me to be my best self for the kids who have so few stable role models, and I don't mind calling the cops on abusive parents. The reason I'm canceling my own career is due to the parents who are over-involved in their children's lives, who micromanage all those who teach them. I can't tell you how many sleepless nights I've had because of the endless, tedious, ferocious communications from parents who complain about every detail of every class trip that I create, the lessons that I teach, particularly in science, and the flaws they perceive in my curriculum, flaws they believe will somehow lead to Armageddon. These same parents believe that the learning needs of their own children should dictate the terms for every other child in the class. Now, these same parents justify their behavior, claiming that they simply love their children and are seeking to do the right thing. But speaking personally, and now after over nine years, it doesn't feel like love to me. The result is that I'm leaving a job I once felt called to, and I've also resigned my position in children's worship at St. Teresa's Church. In the end, it wasn't the parents who cared too little, but the parents who claimed to care more than all the other parents. Their unending expectations killed my vocation. Pray for me because now I don't know what to do. Now, can you hear the, the energy, the somewhat gray, dark matter energy behind that kind of we're just doing what's best for our kids? It can really afflict people. But Jesus gives us a different energy, a different energy, a compelling, beautifying energy, an energy that does not damage that doesn't seek to hurt. And it, it's an energy that comes from these words. Love one another as I have loved you. There's the secret. 
as I have loved you. That's the enabling word in this passage. That's the gospel. The only way we can have the energy to abide under Jesus's extremism regarding the love commandment is to know that we were loved first. We were loved earlier on. We were loved prematurely before we got it, before we obeyed anything. We were loved with all of our moral pockmarks and our hideous mistakes Friends, if we weren't loved first, we can't love at all. That's the message in the New Testament. Alcoholics Anonymous taught us this, you know. They said, you can't give what you haven't got. And if you're feeling like your love has been damaged or is tainted, like my love often is, it's because we were maybe through life or parents or systems given all sorts of forms of love that are out of accord with the Jesus kind of love. And the Jesus kind of love is trying to replace those old loves so that we can be energized by real love and therefore be able to give ourselves away more freely and liberally to people who really need us. Now, let me give you a human example of how extravagant love like that can cure us. It seems obscurantist, but come with me. It'll be fun. This is a movie called The Big Street from 1942, and it starred Lucille Ball and Henry Fonda. It was Lucille Ball's only serious role. Right. In the movie, Lucille plays this prima donna, this haughty, awful woman who is a nightclub singer. And men are drawn to her because she's beautiful, even though she's terrible, uh, especially men with money. And she uses these men for her money with great relish. Uh, but this busboy, played by Henry Fonda, uh, is absolutely head over heels in love for her. Not because of who she shows herself to be, but for who she really is. He sees like the kernel of humanity that's, <laughs> that's under the husk of that kind of angry beauty. Um, but while Lucille Ball's character was in this New York, New York nightclub, um, she meets this um, old spurned lover who gets violent with her and pushes her down a set of stairs and she tumbles down in the dark and starts screaming. And all of a sudden the busboy, who knows her voice, runs to get her, picks her up and realizes that she can't feel her legs anymore. And she has been utterly paralyzed from the waist down, can't move. Uh, she begins to realize it too. And he begins to um, not only does he save her life, but he begins to help her recover to the degree that she's able to. She always remains paralyzed. But he takes her to the hospital. He, with his pathetic salary, pays her medical bills, gets her a new place to live where she can um, uh, travel more easily. And then she, at one point for her career, has to travel down to Miami, but she's in a wheelchair. So he pushes her wheelchair from New York City down to Miami, Florida in hilarious scenes, but also beautifully sacrificial scenes. Um, eventually, she arrives at this nightclub to sing, um, but she's hiding the fact that she can't walk. And she's still rude to everybody, including this man who has given so much to her, the, this ignorant busboy that she calls him. Um, she, she is resistant of that kind of love, can't handle that kind of love. But eventually, uh, during the dinner, he asks her, would you like to dance? And she says, you're an idiot. I can't move. And he said, don't worry. And he goes over to the chair, and he puts his arms very gently around her and lifts her up in a way that looks like she can walk. And he, he has her just, you know, a centimeter off the ground, slowly spinning so that no one knows that she's paralyzed. And she looks at him with new eyes. And she says to him, you know, Bill, I've never been happy. Not for one moment. 
but I am happy right now. And then she says, if I get better, I think I could marry you. But then because it's the real world and her health is fading quickly, she only lives an hour longer and he holds her as they together watch the sunrise over the Atlantic before she dies. It's a very beautiful and heavy scene, but the point of the whole film is that she was only changed by extravagant love. Love that would push a wheelchair from New York to Miami, love that would ask a paralyzed woman to dance, and love that would hide her shame. She finally relents to love. So what motivates, what energizes real love? You know, my goal every single Sunday with you is to saturate you in the sacrificial love of God so that obedience can flow more naturally, so that it wouldn't be false or contrived or come from all sorts of dark energy, but would come from beautiful energy. Um, prior love, friends, is helpful. Prior love makes all the difference. Prior love makes room for us to be more honest because that prior love means God loves us in our sin. Prior love compels us to try new things because we're loved as we fail at them. And prior love helps us to have healthy love for people who drive us crazy because for some odd reason, heaven adores them too. The new commandment was given so that we can evolve so that we can develop into the likeness of extravagant sacrificial love. And obedience to this new commandment, it often kicks itself off, not with, you know, solving world hunger or ending the war in Ukraine or fixing our family in a week, but with little gestures toward those with whom we live and work and worship. Because Jesus taught us this wild thing. He said, if you're faithful in little things, you'll eventually be faithful in the big things. So as we move forward, as we yield, as we evolve, as we seek to live under this new commandment, may the enabling word of this passage sing in your heart. As I have loved you. As I have loved you. As I have rolled you to Miami. As I have loved you. Amen. Oh, they took your life. They could not.